2: Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir John E. Macdonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com Canada CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do all of this full time, and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. From the beginning of June until the end of August, I will be taking a cross-Canada history tour. I'm going to be visiting various rural historical attractions, all of the graves of the Prime Ministers except for R.B. Bennett because he is buried in England, and I'm going to be going from coast to coast to coast, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Arctic over the course of the 90 days. This is going to be a bare-bones trip for me, sleeping in tents and just enjoying the history and nature of Canada. If you'd like, you can help support this trip by going to my GoFundMe page. I'll put the link in my show notes. He led Canada through the bulk of the 1960s with two minority governments. During that time, he brought immense changes to Canada and helped the country gain more prominence on the world stage. Today, I'm looking at the life and career of my favourite Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson. In the 1820s and 1840s, the ancestors of Lester B. Pearson would arrive in Canada with his paternal grandfather, Marmaduke Louis, becoming a notable Methodist minister. His mother's cousin, Reverend Richard Pinch Bowles, would become the Chancellor of Victoria University and officiated the wedding of Pearson's parents. Lester B. Pearson would be born to Annie and Edwin Pearson on April 23, 1897 in Newtonbrook, Ontario. Edwin was a Methodist minister and Lester would move with his family from one town to another as his father worked for various churches in the province. The bulk of his youth would be spent in aurora ontario and pearson would spend his first christmas in the community in the parsonage on catherine avenue within the household alcohol was forbidden education was highly sought after and sundays were always considered a holy day his father was devoted to the british empire and would keep scrapbooks with clippings of the royal family and he would instill in his sons a love of sports and the empire in 1913 at the age of 16 Lester graduated from the Hamilton Collegiate and then went to Australia to spend three months on his uncle's emu farm. When he returned, he enrolled at the University of Toronto. It was at the University of Toronto that Pearson would showcase himself as a highly gifted athlete, especially when it came to hockey, rugby, and basketball. He also showed skill in baseball and lacrosse, enough so that he played semi-professional baseball for the Guelph Maple Leafs of the Ontario Intercounty Baseball League. Pearson would say later in his life that if he had not enlisted in the First World War, he likely would have made it into the major leagues. Pearson was described at the time as a polite young man whose enthusiasm for sports exceeded his interest in his courses. When the First World War erupted, Pearson would join up with the Canadian Army Medical Corps, enlisting on April 23, 1915. Both of his brothers, Marmaduke and Vaughn, would also serve overseas. In 1915, he was sent to Greece to join the fight against the Bulgarians, working as a stretcher-bearer and medical orderly. Soon after his arrival, he was promoted from private to corporal and spent two years in southern Europe. According to Pearson later in his life, he saw the war as a decisive moment in his life, but he was typically conventional in his attitudes about it during the war. He even supported conscription in 1917. While Pearson was serving in Greece, which was neutral, he sought transfer to the Western Front, possibly looking to achieve some sort of heroism that had been described in dispatches. He would get his wish and was sent to England to train, but while there he and his brother Duke decided they wanted to become aviators, not infantry officers. He would soon switch to the Royal Flying Corps, serving as a flying officer and earning the rank of lieutenant. He would learn to fly at Hendon, England, and survived a crash on his very first flight. It was in the Flying Corps he earned the name, Mike, after an instructor gave him the nickname, believing that Lester was too mild a name for an airman. From this point on, he would use Lester on official documents and in public life, but with friends and family, he was always Mike. In December of 1917, during a citywide blackout in London, Pearson was hit by a bus, and was sent home to Canada and then discharged. He was not disabled by the incident but his recuperation took several months and he would return to Canada on April 6th 1918. After the war Pearson had developed a resentment for persons of authority especially British officers and with his emotional breakdown following his injury and recuperation he began to keep his feelings private. Despite this before the end of the war Pearson would attempt to return to the war but he was denied the request. At the time, he had constant headaches, tremors, and could not sleep. In 1919, he would earn his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Toronto, but he did not know what he wanted to do with his career. He considered both business and law, and he received a scholarship to study at Oxford from 1921 to 1923. While there, he would play for the Oxford University Ice Hockey Club, helping the team win the first Spengler Cup in 1923. While playing in Switzerland, he gained the nickname from the Swiss Herr Zigzag for his play on the ice. That same year, he toured North America with the Oxford and Cambridge lacrosse team. In 1920, with his brother Duke, he joined the Armour Company, a meat company in Chicago where his uncle was the president. He would go to Chicago to work for the company in 1920, working as a clerk in the fertilizer division. But he would soon realize he did not want to stay there and he left to go to Oxford. In 1925, he married Mary Ann Moody, who had been a student at the University of Toronto. Together, the couple would have two children, Geoffrey and Patricia. Through his life, Mary Ann was supportive of her husband and his political endeavors. When Pearson met Mary Ann, he was immediately attracted to her, and within a few weeks, he asked her to a party. Five weeks later, they were engaged. Mary Ann would write to her friend, stating, Don't tell a soul, because we aren't telling the public till after term. I am engaged, end quote. Marianne was a fierce defender of her husband throughout their marriage and could also give some barbed comments to her husband on occasion. Later in life, she would say, quote, behind every successful man, there is a surprised woman, end quote. While she despised politics, she would help her husband in the selection of his cabinets and she had a deep wit that many appreciated and some disliked. As a professor with a growing family, Pearson found that he was not making enough money, but a new opportunity would open up. Pearson would take the Canadian Foreign Service entry exam, earning top marks, and would join the Department of External Affairs. And by 1928, he was greatly admired for his work, with several politicians taking notice. Working with Pearson, Hugh Keenleyside would state he was, quote, "...in good physical shape, vigorous and alert, cheerful, amusing, Keenly interested in his work, ambitious for the service, and himself. End quote. In 1930, Pearson would attend the London Naval Conference, as well as meetings of the League of Nations and the First World Conference on Disarmament in Geneva in 1932. Prime Minister R.B. Bennett would notice Pearson, and it was Bennett who appointed Pearson to two major government inquiries, the 1931 Royal Commission on Grain Futures, And the 1934 Royal Commission on price spreads. Due to his work on those commissions Bennett saw to it that Pearson was recognized with the most excellent order of the British Empire award and given a bonus of $1,800 or $32,000 today. In 1935 Pearson was sent to London as the first secretary of the Canadian High Commission. While there he saw that the continent was drifting towards war and this would influence him later in life to have a strong stance toward collective defense as a means to counter dictatorships. Things did not get off to a great start for Pearson, who put forward a proposal for sanctions against Italy for its invasion of Ethiopia in October. Prime Minister King was extremely angry about this proposal, but thankfully, Pearson escaped blame. While many, including King, would pursue appeasement with Hitler, Pearson felt this was the wrong approach, and he would write to a friend at the time, quote, If I am tempted to become cynical and isolationist, I think of Hitler screeching into the microphone, Jewish women and children in ditches on the Polish border, Goring, the genial ape man, and Goebbels, the evil imp, and then, whatever the British side may represent, the other does indeed stand for savagery and barbarism. End quote. When war broke out, Pearson would stay in England, but Marianne and the kids went to the safety of Canada. Pearson would serve in the role until 1942, when he coordinated military supply and refugee issues under Vincent Massey, a future Governor-General. In his memoirs, Pearson related that he was hired by Sir William Stevenson in 1940, the Canadian Second World War spymaster and the inspiration for James Bond, who hired Pearson to serve as a courier taking secret documents to Europe. Pearson returned to Canada but soon found himself on the move again, This time as the second-in-command at the Canadian Embassy in 1942 in Washington. Pearson was easygoing with a personal charm many liked, which gained him many friends both in the press and the department. He was also becoming a minor celebrity in the United States, and he would appear on a radio quiz program and became close with several major American journalists. In the United States, Pearson admired the Americans for their energy and creativity, he liked President Roosevelt and his New Deal, and he especially enjoyed baseball games and going to Broadway musicals. In 1945, he was named as the Canadian Ambassador to the United States, where he would attend the founding conference of the United Nations. In September of 1946, Pearson was named the Deputy Minister of External Affairs by Prime Minister Mackenzie King. In this role, he would promote the United Nations and a close and strong economic and political relationship with the United States and Britain. He was almost chosen as the first Secretary General of the United Nations, but the Soviets vetoed it. A few years later, in 1953, he was once again almost chosen as the Secretary General, with 10 out of 11 votes from the Security Council, but the Soviet Union vetoed it once again. As a rising star, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King had attempted to recruit Pearson into the federal government. Pearson, though honoured, always declined as he did not like the personal style or political methods of King. He would eventually go into federal politics, but only as the career of King was coming to an end. Pearson would say later in life, quote, I don't like the circus part of politics. It makes me blush. End quote. In 1948, King appointed Pearson as the Secretary of State for External Affairs, and Pearson became close with Louis Saint-Laurent, with both knowing that King would soon be retiring. In his first election, Pearson took 56.4% of the vote in his riding of Algoma East. When St. Laurent became Prime Minister, he would give Pearson important political support for an innovative foreign policy. For Pearson, this was welcomed as the new king was always wary of the enthusiasms that Pearson had and the tendency of Pearson to commit Canada to international agreements. Thanks to the work of Pearson, Canada would join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in 1949. It was his hope that its existence would discourage any sort of aggression from the Soviet Union. Pearson was no fan of Soviet communism, often equating it with Nazism. And he would write, quote, We did not take very seriously the preposterous statements of the slightly ridiculous author of Mein Kampf. We preferred the friendly remarks of jolly old Goring at his hunting lodge. End quote. Pearson had known that Mein Kampf was the real agenda of Hitler, and he saw Stalin doing the same. He would say that Stalin's harsh statements, quote, "...form the basic dogma on which the policy of the USSR is inflexibly based." End quote. While he was not a fan of communism, he did not succumb to the anti-communist hysteria of the United States. During the Red Scare in the early 1950s in America... Pearson would gain the anger of several prominent Americans when he supported Egerton Norman, a Canadian diplomat accused of being a communist agent. He also refused to allow the Soviet defector, Igor Gazenko, to testify in the United States. He would refuse to fire Norman, which made J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI angry and suspicious of him. Colonel Robert McCormick, a friend of Hoover and the owner of the Chicago Tribune, would have his newspaper write that Pearson was, quote, The most dangerous man in the western world." When the Korean War broke out in 1950, Pearson told journalists that he did not believe the UN or the Americans would intervene. Three days later, the United States decided to get into the war. Pearson was in support of this as he felt the Americans and the UN would call the bluff of the communists and strengthen the power of the UN. Originally, Canada was only going to send some ships, but Pearson urged more and Canada became a major player in the ground war in Korea. That same year, he pushed Canada to contribute to the Colombo Plan for Cooperative Economic Development in South and Southeast Asia, the first multilateral international development program. For Pearson, he saw international assistance as a powerful weapon against communism. Pearson believed that $100 million spent wisely on international economic assistance, in the right places, did more than spending $100 on weapons or armed defense. In 1969, he would say, quote, There is no greater threat to humanity, no greater danger to peace, than that from two-thirds of mankind remaining hungry, disillusioned, and desperate. Wretchedness and poverty in one part of the world, with the conflict and desperate hopelessness it creates, is bound to affect stability and progress in all other parts. End quote. In 1952, he served as the president of the UN General Assembly, where he criticized the Americans and their policies in Asia. After General Douglas MacArthur, the UN commander in Korea, spoke out against extending the war, Pearson decided that he needed to speak out against that. On April 10, 1951, he spoke in Toronto, stating that the UN could not, quote, be the instrument of any one country, end quote. He also said that others had the right to criticize American policy. Later that day, Truman fired MacArthur. Pearson wanted to contain the communist expansion, but he was not in favor of rolling back communism by going into countries, and he did not like the excesses on the international stage the Americans were showing. In October of 1955, Pearson became the first Western foreign minister to visit the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin. During that trip, he would spend a night drinking with Nikita Khrushchev, apparently drinking him under the table. But despite this, he still did not think that the Soviet Union would become more benign on the world stage. In late 1956, Israel invaded Egypt, followed by the United Kingdom and France. This was done in an effort to regain control for the western powers of the Suez Canal and to remove the Egyptian president who had nationalized the canal. The United States had not been informed of the invasion, and the Soviet Union threatened to use atomic weapons against the British and the French. This quickly began to escalate, and there was a fear that it would launch the Third World War, which would almost certainly go nuclear. None of the nations wanted to lose face in the matter, and Pearson would propose sending a United Nations Emergency Force to the region to separate the warring parties. Many accused him of betraying Britain and hurting the ties between the United Kingdom and Canada, but others stated that Pearson had literally saved the world. Charlotte Witten, the mayor of Ottawa, was critical, and she would state, quote, It's too bad Nasser couldn't help Mike Pearson to cross Elliott Lake when Mr. Pearson did so much to help him along the Suez Canal, end quote. The Secretary General would state that Pearson was one of the fathers of the modern concept of peacekeeping, the United Nations Emergency Force was created and would diffuse the entire situation. For his efforts, Pearson was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1957 for his role. To date, he is the only Canadian to have received the honour.
0: Your Majesty, Your Royal Highness, Your Chairman, Your Excellencies, Members of the Committee, Lady Vinges, May I begin by thanking you, Mr. Chairman, for your very kind and generous words. I regret that my education was not sufficient for me to follow them in your own language, sir. But there were two words which I recognized, "Lester Pearson, which seemed to me to come up too often, <laughs> though I Realize that, that might be difficult to avoid in the circumstances. I'm very conscious of the fact this morning that I received an honor that cannot fail to arouse deep emotion in the heart of the recipient. My sense of pride and pleasure on this occasion is increased by the presence, the gracious presence here of His Majesty and Her Royal Highness and by the fact, sir, that you have been able to preside over this occasion.
2: I realize also
0: that I share this honor with many friends and colleagues who have worked with me for the promotion of peace and good understanding between people. And I'm grateful for the opportunity, the special opportunity, that I have been given to participate in that work As a representative of my country, Canada, whose people have, I think, shown their devotion in war and in peace to the ideal
2: of peace. With the Suez Crisis and the Nobel Peace Prize, Pearson saw his fame increase across Canada. In 1957, John Diefenbaker would end 22 years of liberal dominance in politics, and with that loss, Louis Saint Laurent decided to resign as leader of the Liberal Party, and Pearson was chosen at the Leadership Convention of 1958, defeating Paul Martin Sr. to become the leader of the party. Pearson was able to cruise to victory on the first ballot with 77.8% of the vote.
0: The result of the ballot is as follows. The Reverend uh, Mr. Henderson won. Paul Martin, 305. L.B. Pearson one thousand and seventy-four! There he is, the Honorable Lester B. Wilson, now no
1: longer a simple member of Parliament, but leader of the Liberal Party, and shortly to become leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition in the House of Commons. This is for the scores of photographers who are clustered around
0: that roster, everybody wants a picture of... Mr. Pearson and Mr. Samaroff, together. A man without work is not a statistic. He's a challenge to society. He's a challenge that liberal governments have met and will meet. The charts to guide us in this past have been established by the resolutions you have adopted. Our resolutions are, indeed, in startling and stimulating contrast to those at the last conservative convention, which were born in controversy and frustration, were misshapen and unattractive after birth, and were then quietly smothered in one of the cruelest acts of political infanticide in history.
2: With the Peace Prize and now the leader of the Liberal Party, Pearson may have been a bit overconfident, and it would show in his first efforts in the House of Commons. Up against John Diefenbaker and his Conservatives, Pearson would take on Diefenbaker in the House of Commons, stating that since Diefenbaker had a minority government, he should resign and hand the government over to the Liberals. Pearson said in that speech, I would be prepared, if called upon, to form a government of ending the Tory pause and getting this country back on the Liberal highway of progress, from which we have temporarily diverted. What followed was a two-hour speech from Diefenbaker that completely obliterated Pearson in Parliament. Pearson would say that Diefenbaker tore him to shreds and he knew that it was a mistake as soon as he started speaking. He would add, quote, No one has ever started off worse than I did. End quote. In the 1958 federal election, Diefenbaker led his Conservatives to the biggest majority in Canadian history at the time, picking up 208 seats, leaving the Liberals with only 48. One of the biggest surprises was the voting of Quebec, Since 1917 and the First World War conscription crisis, Quebec had typically always voted for the Liberals, especially when Louis Saint Laurent was leader. With no prominent Quebecer leading the Liberal Party, the party lost a great deal of support there. At first, Pearson was thinking about resigning, which his wife encouraged. He was over 60, he had won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he had a stellar career behind him. But he would be encouraged to stay by friends. It was also clear that Baker was a better campaigner than Prime Minister, and the economy was starting to take hits after a long boom. With that, Pearson decided to stay on as leader. From this point, Pearson began to work towards rebuilding the Liberal Party. Using seasoned cabinet ministers who had served with William Lyon Mackenzie King and Louis Saint Laurent, Pearson grew the party's base. He would host a Thinkers Conference in Kingston in 1960, To develop the ideas that the party would implement when it came back into power. Before long, Pearson grew more confident in the House of Commons. At one point, Diefenbaker tried to interrupt Pearson in the House of Commons, to which Pearson stated, Sit down, Mr. Prime Minister, sit down. Be calm, sir. In the 1962 election, Pearson was able to take the largest majority in Canadian history and reduce it to a minority government thanks to the 100 seats Liberals took. Pearson, seeing there was now a chance to take on the Conservatives who were weakened, he started to hit at Diefenbaker for his indecision on accepting nuclear warheads on Canadian soil. Pearson was opposed to nuclear weapons in Canada, but he would say that the country had to accept them because it had made a commitment to its allies. He would say about the matter, quote, We will accept nuclear weapons because we have to, Sometime later, Canadian policy will change, as all defence policies change. We think now that it may change into a non-nuclear policy, but it will depend on the circumstances a year or two or three from now, and those circumstances may dictate that we continue to maintain nuclear weapons. I believe the search for a sane defence policy is only made more difficult by mixing it up with slogans and emotions. End quote. Pearson would go on to say to Maclean's magazine, quote I've become a kind of symbol for a lot of the woolly ideas people have about peace and defense. Quote. Soon after, Diefenbaker would see his defense minister, Douglas Harkness, resign. The day after that, February 4th, 1963, Diefenbaker's government lost two non-confidence motions, forcing the election. Diefenbaker, despite his faults leading, was a genius when it came to campaigning and speaking in a new medium like television. Pearson, for his part did not always come across well on television. During speeches on the campaign trail, he would often talk too long, and he saw the campaign trail as a job to be done, not an opportunity to be seized. There is some irony to the fact that Pearson did not come across as well on television, considering he had a great enjoyment of the medium himself. He would say to a reporter during the campaign, To my wife's disgust, I am also an undiscriminating TV viewer. End quote. Pearson would say he enjoyed baseball and hockey games, Wayne and Schuster, Dr. Kildare, but he had a special affection for Marshall Dillon of Gunsmoke. He would say, quote, His serene and courageous solution of all the problems of the community encourages me. End quote. Pearson was described as a man who expected to win and cared more about what his ideas would eventually accomplish than about how many people he inspired with them. One of his campaign workers would say, quote, Pearson is problem-oriented. His ideas are not saleable." End quote. Some felt that Pearson, while a highly gifted diplomat, was not a great politician, and he would respond, quote, "I don't know what that means. It required some ability to rebuild the Liberal Party after what happened to it in 1958 without being egotistical. I don't think that the rebuilding would have been done better by someone these people would call a good politician." End quote. The Liberals won the election with 129 seats while the Conservatives fell to 95. The party was five seats short of a majority and Baker stayed on as Prime Minister until six Social Credit MPs put their support behind Pearson.
0: The election is over, passions have been aroused, controversies have been uh, aired as is customary in a, in a general election. The time has come now to put aside the controversial aspect of this election and to do what we can for the good of our country, to think only of our country at this time, to decide how best the government of this country can be carried on. As soon as the final result of this election is known, then it will be the responsibility of the Prime Minister and every other political leader to make a decision which is in the best interest of Canada, which is the only interest we serve. Thank you. So I conclude tonight by pledging my own service and devotion to that interest and by thanking again all Canadians who did their duty as citizens today, who went to the polls and voted for the candidate in the party of their choice, and I thank particularly those who showed their confidence in the Liberal Party and in me as its leader. I will do my best not to... To betray that confidence in any way in the days and weeks and months ahead. Thank you.
2: On April 22, 1963, Pearson was sworn in as the 14th Prime Minister of Canada. At his disposal, Pearson had excellent cabinet ministers. Paul Martin Sr. had served in Parliament for 28 years to that point. John Pickersgill was seen as the equal of Diefenbaker for his ability to debate in the House of Commons while other ministers brought a great deal of business experience. At first, things were rocky for Pearson as Prime Minister. The first budget was presented in June of 1963, and many felt it focused too much on the use of outside advisors and had too much of a focus on nationalism. The response to the budget would lead to the resignation of the finance minister, which Pearson refused. At the same time, Pearson was dealing with rising Quebec separatism and the FLQ attacks that included bombs being placed around Montreal. And this would lead Pearson to start looking at a way to reconcile English and French Canada. Despite never having a majority government and a rough start, Pearson's Liberals would bring in immense changes to Canada, including universal health care, the Canadian pension plan, the Canada student loans, a new national flag, a new minimum wage, and the creation of a 40-hour workweek. Along with the universal healthcare, which I did an episode on last year, so check it out on my website, www.CanadaEHX.com, the lasting legacy of this time is the Canadian flag that Pearson and the Liberals brought in in 1965. I did an episode on the Great Canadian Flag Debate in February, so check that out as it goes into much greater detail. It's on my website. Pearson wanted Canada to have a flag that gave it a unique identity on the world stage, without having anything related to the French or British Empire. His original design was three maple leaves on a stem with two blue bars on either side. In order to win over his harshest critics, he went to the National Legion Convention in Winnipeg and spoke directly to veterans. At the meeting, he would wear his medals from the First World War to show the veterans that he was one of them. He could have easily chosen to speak at a liberal fundraiser, but he chose to speak in the lion's den and he would win over many in the crowd to his cause.
0: In January 1944, the Red Ensign came officially on the scene. In World War II, the Red Ensign came officially on the scene. Though we sometimes forget, it's all right, Mr. Chairman, this is a veterans' meeting. (laughs) And as Harry Truman once said, if you can't stand the heat, keep out of the kitchen. But we do sometimes forget the flag designated for the first Canadian division, the first Canadian forces overseas, and presented as such to General McNaughton on his departure from Canada for Europe, was one with three joint red maple leaves predominant on it. And and I believe, as sincerely as some of you may believe in another design, I believe that today a flag designed around the maple leaf will symbolize and be a true reflection of the new Canada. Today, today there are five million or more Canadians whose tradition is not inherited from the British Isles, but who are descendants of the original French founders of our country There are another five million or more who have come to Canada from other faraway lands whose heritage is neither British nor French. I believe that a Canadian flag as distinctive as the maple leaf in the Legion badge will bring them all closer, bring all these Canadians closer to us of British stock and make us all better and more united Canadians.
2: The Conservatives under Diefenbaker resisted the creation of a new flag with almost over-the-top fervour. Eventually, a committee was created and through some great political manoeuvring by the Liberals and other parties, the Canadian flag, made by George Stanley, was chosen. The debate over the flag would go for over 200 days, with Diefenbaker resisting against it every step of the way until one of his own MPs rebelled against the party line and invoked closure on the debate, allowing a vote to happen. The flag would be chosen and has now become an iconic flag that is easily recognizable around the world. As for Diefenbaker, when he died, he had the Canadian flag obscured on his casket by the red ensign. On January 15, 1964, Pearson became the first Canadian Prime Minister to make an official state visit to France. In 1965, Pearson was able to improve the Liberal seat count, rising to 131 seats but still fell short of majority. Despite the win, Pearson would offer his resignation to his cabinet, but it was refused. After the election, Pearson began to put extra emphasis on Quebec, and he would also see several prominent Quebec politicians rise in his party, including a man named Pierre Trudeau. Pearson would meet with President Lyndon Johnson in January of 1965, and he signed the Auto Pact, which eliminated the tariff on cars, trucks, parts, and accessories going over the border. This would be hugely beneficial for Canada and would lead to North America's economic integration. Around this time, the Vietnam War was beginning to rage, and President Johnson asked Canada to join the United States in Vietnam. Pearson refused, and on April 2, 1965, he spoke at Temple University in Philadelphia, where he reportedly stated that there should be a pause in the bombing of North Vietnam so that a diplomatic solution could be found. He would say, quote, Hanoi authorities with an opportunity, if they wish to take it, to inject some flexibility into their policy without appearing to do so as a direct result of military pressure. End quote. President Johnson was livid with the fact that Pearson said this on American soil, and he was summoned to Camp David to see Johnson. According to legend, Johnson grabbed Pearson by the lapels and screamed, quote, Don't you come into my living room and piss on my rug. End quote. Pearson would later state that the meeting had started acrimoniously, but that it ended cordially. As Prime Minister, Pearson also started the Royal Commission on the Status of Women and the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism. These commissions would bring in changes to create legal equality for women and make Canada a bilingual nation. Pearson had wanted to be the last unilingual Prime Minister, and today, fluency in both French and English is an unofficial requirement for the Prime Minister. Pearson is also credited with creating the world's first race-free immigration system, but it should be noted that Diefenbaker began the initial steps towards this, and he should be given as much credit for it. Trudeau was also the Minister of Justice now, which would begin to lay the foundations for immense changes in Canadian laws and the decriminalization of homosexuality, which would happen after Pearson left politics, but which the first steps were taken in his last year as Prime Minister. In 1966, Pearson put forward a motion in Parliament for the recognizing of God Save the Queen as the official, Royal Anthem, and O Canada as the National Anthem. While this was the start of an official recognizing of O Canada, it would not be until 1980 that it was made the official, National Anthem. In 1967, Pearson would oversee Canada's centennial celebrations, and he also saw the arrival of Expo 67, Both events helped push Canada's profile on the world stage and fostered immense national pride among Canadians. Expo 67, which I'll be doing an episode on eventually, didn't start off great when it came to construction and Pearson would worry that the tight construction deadlines would not be reached. Nonetheless, he would be at the opening of Expo 67 on April 27th and he would speak to the crowd saying, quote, The heading of an article about Expo in a recent issue of an American magazine referred to it as The Big Blast Up North. Certainly Expo is going to be that and much more. Behind this big Canadian blast are achievements in planning, organization and construction that are little short of miraculous. The men behind these achievements should be proud and happy. We should be grateful to them, as we recall the skeptics who once said Expo 67 was too big a project for Montreal, Quebec or Canada to accomplish in less than four years. But it was done, and well done. End quote. He would close out his remarks speaking on the unity of Canada, saying, quote, By the time the gates of Expo are closed, six months from now, its successes will have made all Canadians prouder of our own country than ever before, and more conscious of the interdependence and brotherhood of all men and all nations. End quote. Pearson would be proven right. Today, Expo 67 is seen as a landmark moment in Canadian history, and its cultural impact would be felt for decades to come. It is also considered one of the most successful world exhibitions in history. The Centennial was the big event of the year for all Canadians in 1967, and Pearson ensured that it would be a moment for all Canadians to celebrate. In 1965, he would appoint Ernest Cote to plan events in Ottawa for 1967, and for the creation of the Confederation train, although that was proposed initially by John Diefenbaker in 1961. The centennial would also see the creation of the Order of Canada. When Pearson proposed it in the House of Commons, and when the release was sent out about it, the Prime Minister's office incorrectly cited Hebrews 12.16, which said, "...lest there be any fornicators or profane person, as is so, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright." The error caused John Diefenbaker to state that the government couldn't even quote scripture right. The
1: Governor General has announced the names of the first people to receive the Companion of Order of Canada awards and Medals of Service. There are now 35 Companions of the Order and 55 winners of the Medal of Service. Winners have been chosen from people in the arts, sciences, public service, church, business, labour unions, sports, and local government. The investiture will be held in Ottawa this fall with appropriate ceremonies. Among those named today was Dr. Wilfred Pelletche, who has been associated with the Montreal Symphony Orchestra since 1930. CBC newsman Dave Struthers asked Dr. Pelche how he felt about receiving the award. I feel very
0: honored about that. I, you were the first one to call me this morning about that. And uh, uh, though about a month ago they had asked me, if, but I didn't know what order it was, if I would accept uh, uh, a, a, some kind of uh, reward. I said, for what? But they asked, they said, well, for the work you have done. But I said, I've done what uh, any uh, artist would do.
1: Another winner is Madame Therese Casgrin, who has been working with the civil liberties groups and associations for the equality of women for the past 20 years. She had this to say
3: Well, without any false humility, I feel quite pleased because I think it's always nice to have your country recognize what you've tried to do for it.
1: Is there any single thing in your long efforts for civil liberties and uh, equal rights for women that you think the committee might have recognized?
3: Well, I suppose it's because uh, uh, a few years ago it was under my, uh, when I was a leader of the uh, uh, suffrage movement in Quebec, that we got women's suffrage for the Quebec women, and we got their admission to the bar uh, and to the notarial professions, and maybe this is the aspect that they looked upon it. They looked upon
1: What do you feel yourself about a system of awards like this being instituted in Canada?
3: Well, I was very pleased because I think that uh, Canada is a wonderful country and I always feel that it's better to have your own country recognize your merits than have another uh, country give you a medal or something.
2: On New Year's Eve 1966, Pearson, dressed in the top hat and gloves, lit the Centennial fire using a match on a long pole. The Centennial Flame had been built using red Canadian granite and featured a bronze coat of arms for the ten provinces and two territories. On January 6, 1967, Pearson attended the Centennial World Invitation Tournament in which Canada defeated the Soviet Union 5-4. Pearson would say later, quote, When they ran up that flag, the teams lined up opposite each other and we all sang O Canada, and then I knew what the definition of a Canadian was. End quote. For the big event, a six-meter-high cake decorated with the national coat of arms and provincial crests was on display, and Queen Elizabeth II cut the cake using a knife that her father, King George VI, had used for a similar event. The centennial also brought several important world leaders to the country, which would lead to a diplomatic incident. French President Charles de Gaulle had come to Canada and visited Quebec. De Gaulle decided that he wanted to tour the country as the French traders did centuries ago, by boat, and he would begin the tour in Quebec. On July 23rd, 1967, his ship arrived in Quebec City, and on July 24th, the same day that Jacques Cartier had arrived in Canada in 1534, he went with Daniel Johnson, the Premier of Quebec, towards Montreal. Along the way, 500,000 Quebecers saluted him, and he would make speeches at several towns along the way, once he reached Montreal, he spoke to a crowd of 20,000 in front of City Hall, where he would utter the words, Viva la Quebec libre! The crowd went crazy for it, but the federal government and Pearson were left stunned. Pearson was enraged by this, especially given the role Canada played in liberating France during both World Wars, and he would speak out against de Gaulle the next day, stating, quote, Canadians do not need to be liberated. Canada will remain united. And will reject any effort to destroy her unity. He also stated that de Gaulle was no longer welcome in Canada, and de Gaulle would leave Canada, not visiting Ottawa.
1: The Prime Minister's statement was postponed time after time this afternoon. When it finally did come, several hours later than originally estimated, it appeared truly to have been born of hard labor. One official called it the most delicate and most important single decision any government has had to make in recent years. Here's how the statement finally came out.
0: I am sure that Canadians in all parts of our country were pleased when the President of France received such a warm welcome in Quebec. However, certain statements by the President tend to encourage the small minority of our population whose aim is to destroy Canada. And as such, they are unacceptable the Canadian people and to its government the people of Canada are free every province of Canada is free Canadians do not need to be liberated indeed many thousands of Canadians gave their lives in two world wars in the liberation of France and other European countries Canada will remain united and will reject any effort to destroy her unity. Canada has always had a special relationship with France, the motherland of so many Canadians. We attach the greatest importance to our friendship with the French people. It has been and remains the strong purpose of the government of Canada to foster that friendship I hope that my discussions later this week with General de Gaulle will demonstrate that this purpose is one which he shares."
2: And of course it wasn't all roses and sunshine under Pearson either. One of the most controversial moves was the White Paper on Defence, which would lay out a plan to merge the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Canadian Army into the Canadian Forces, a single force. Unification would take place in 1968 after Pearson left office, and it caused a severe hit to the morale of soldiers, air crews, and sailors at the time, and it was highly criticized. On December 14, 1967, Pearson announced that he was retiring from politics. His successor was his Justice Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Two other cabinet ministers, Jean Chrétien and John Turner, would both go on to serve as prime ministers as well. Amazingly, upon his resignation, a poll found 70% of Canadians could not think of a single beneficial accomplishment of his government. Marshall McLuhan would state, quote, The Liberal Convention will have to select a nobody. These executive positions are so meaningless today that only a nobody would want the job, End quote. Pearson was the chairman of the Commission on International Development sponsored by the World Bank. With the creation of the Montreal Expos, Pearson became the honorary president and was given a lifetime pass to American and National League baseball games. He would lecture on history and political science at Carleton University while writing his memoirs, and from 1970 to 1972, he became the first chairman of the Board of Governors on the International Development Research Centre. In 1970, Pearson lost his right eye after it was removed in order to remove a tumour that had developed And during this time, he was writing his three-volume set of memoirs and published Volume 1 in 1972 and was nearly finished Volume 2 when he was admitted to hospital for treatment. He rapidly began to see his condition worsen throughout the latter part of the year. And on December 27th, 1972, the cancer had spread to his liver and Pearson fell into a coma. He would die that day at 11.40pm in his Ottawa home.
1: The pallbearers are being led by the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, Senator Paul Martin is also there. And from beneath the Gothic arch draped in black, a salute to the coffin by the Guard of Honor. General salute, accorded to Mr. Pearson. As he leaves, the Parliament Buildings of Canada, the Centre Block, and the Hall of Honour, for the last time. It's the bleakest of winter days here in Ottawa. Freezing rain has been falling since early this morning. Coffin in the hearse ready for the procession to the church. Temperature close to 30, and the honorary pallbearers fall into place. It's interesting to speculate as we look out across at the military elements regard of honor, of Mike Pearson's own military career and how what he saw and what he did influenced him for the rest of his life. In 1914, his friends were flocking to the Colors, and in March, his older brother Duke enlisted. In his memoirs, 57 years later, he wrote, War, in all its hideousness,
2: were destroyed. During his life, Pearson was heavily honoured. He was the Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year nine times more than anyone else, until Pierre Trudeau surpassed him in 2000. The Pearson Medal of Peace was first awarded in 1979 by the United Nations, and in a survey of the top 20 Prime Ministers up until Jean Chrétien, Pearson placed 6th. In another survey of the best Prime Ministers since the Second World War, Pearson placed 1st, apparently by a landslide. Diefenbaker, the longtime rival of Pearson, finished 6th and received no 1st place votes. Time has only seemed to improve the image of Pearson in the eyes of historians and Canadians. By 2016, he was ranked the fourth greatest Prime Minister in Canadian history. In 2004, during a nationwide poll, CBC ranked Pearson as the sixth greatest Canadian in history, and only Tommy Douglas and Pierre Trudeau ranked higher than Pearson among politicians. Several locations are named for Pearson, including the Lester B. Pearson College, the Pearson Peacekeeping Centre, as well as 12 schools. Mike's Place... The Graduate Student Pub at Carleton University was named for him in 1972, and the busiest airport in Canada is named for Pearson, called Toronto Pearson International Airport. Several buildings, parks, and roads are also named for Pearson. From 1971 to 2010, the best NHL player, as voted by the National Hockey League Players Association, was awarded the Lester B. Pearson Award before the name was changed to the Ted Lindsay Award. Pearson is also a member of the Sports Hall of Fame at the University of Toronto and the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. I hope you enjoyed that look at Lester B. Pearson, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at You can also visit my website. You we will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall... Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com canadianhistoryx Canadian History X. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Nobelprize.org, Canadian Encyclopedia, Carleton University, Wikipedia, Biography, Archives Canada, Maclean's, virtualmuseum.ca, iPolitics.ca, Wheat Province Diamonds, Aurora, Its Beginnings, and The Year Canadians Lost Their Minds. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.